0: welcome to the j scott outdoors podcast today we have the digital content manager from gohunt.com brady miller with us brady how you doing
1: hey good just hanging in there it's good to be uh back on here chatting about hunting again
0: yeah had a great episode the last time we talked and uh sounds like you uh went up to wyoming and uh got her done up there some awesome photos in the snow i can't wait to talk to you about the hunt and about the gear and uh, just how everything shook out. Uh, so, uh, why don't you uh, start us out? How, how you got the tag, how you found out about this unit, and and start from there.
1: Yeah, so basically, uh, I believe it was about a year ago, we were starting to uh, finalize all of our draw odd stuff for uh, Go Hunt Insider. And I, I've already been applying for Wyoming in years past for different species. And I had, you know, I think it was one preference point at the time for Wyoming. So, I was like, for mule deer and I was like, well, I need to, you know, I want to expand some new states, check some other stuff out. So I started looking harder into Wyoming and like the season dates are great for it. I actually didn't have time this year to go up for the archery hunt. So I was just going to focus on the rifle tag. And uh, then I started digging in it further and I was like, well, it's, you know, it's basically hundred percent odds if I draw this tag in a special draw, cause Wyoming, uh, I don't know, if you know much about Wyoming, but they have a preference point system to allocate 75% of the tags with most preference points and then 25 go to random. And so I probably could have drawn the tag without going to special draw. Special draw is basically you pay a little bit more money and you kind of get better odds. So in special draw, they still allocate 40% of the tags will go to not we'll go 40% of the tags in, in special draw go to the non-resident quota. So I got a little better odds, and so I think I actually drew it basically because I went to special. So I got fairly fortunate on that, and I was, um, you know, just just really focused on getting another hunt under my belt this year in that perfect date situation. So I drew the tag that way. And Were you able to gro-
0: filter to find that. Were you able to use the filter on the, the insider to the filtering 2.0? Were you actually able to use that to figure out the unit that you hunted?
1: Yep. So why breaks it down into areas. So basically I just draw an area tag and in that in that or a region tags, so basically in the in the regions, um they're broken down into individual areas. So basically I could take the filter and say I had one preference point I'm going in on the special draw and I filtered over to how much percent chance I think I'm going to, it's going to be and a bit, boom, it popped up as hundred percent for this, for this area that I could draw with, with the preference points I have. So it's just, it's just super easy with that, with the insider draw odds. I can just, I knew right away, I basically knew before I was applying that I'm going to have this tag. So I st- kind of started, you know, researching ahead of time about the area and it just made it, it, made it so much easier knowing, okay, I can apply for this one instead of going for, you know, one of the more special areas of Wyoming where everyone tries to go to and point creep happens. And this, I don't want to deal with that I'd rather be like, okay, I can hunt more or I can wait, you know, five years and then draw a tag and not know anything about the, the unit. Otherwise I can hunt almost every other year right now, the way I'm going at it. So Wyoming is definitely a spot where, you know, you could draw a tag every, every couple of years and really figure out your hunting spot and kind of hone in on it. And I think that's very beneficial instead of applying for all those trophy areas across the West. It's kind of my strategy.
0: For sure. And I mean, so at that point you basically knew when you applied that you were going to get it and Mm -hmm. that allowed you to then start researching where to go and people to talk to as far as drainages and, and different things. Uh, you know, I think that alone allows you a lot of time to kind of get all that research done. Um, oh,
1: yeah. It, it cut my research really fast, knowing, like, ahead of time, like I said, like, if, if all the draw works how it went the year before, and because I was going in with a special draw, so my draw odds were a little better, knowing that, okay, I've, you know, nearly 100% chance of drawing this tag through a special draw just eliminates the worry that I can just start planning right away, start, you know, convincing my fiance that, these are the dates I want to go hunting and try to get those okay with her and all that good stuff. So it just, it makes it a lot easier.
0: That's a whole nother podcast in itself.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it totally is. A, <laughs> we can all relate life. to that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um,
0: and so what were your expectations not having been to this unit or this region? And I mean, kind of what were you thinking as far as know if I see this I'll be tickled pink if I see this kind of buck I mean did you have high expectations or were you as far as trophy expectations or
1: when I I get a rifle in my hand I definitely uh, this is only the second time I've rifle hunted in eight years so it's like I get a rifle in my hand I do get pretty trigger happy and but I was like well it's a rifle tag I've you know I know I can physically handle anything the mountains want to throw at me and I've done a lot of scouting and so i really was trying to hold out for that you know 175 180 type mark i mean the trophy potential in the area you know a, a 170 buck is a really good deer in the place i was going and it's just i know like you know wyoming any like there could be a big giant deer on any corner of a tree or in any next basin it's just like i have a hard time like my my dad always tells me you know I was, I was out there i was sat messaging him telling him all the deer i was passing up and he's like you know brady you could shoot 160 inch deer, that'd be fine. But it's like, you shoot that 160 inch deer, two days later, there could be a 190, you know, right around the corner. And i was like, I'd rather wait and hold out. And that's kind of my mentality. I was going into it beforehand. It's like, you know, that 165, 180 is something I'll, I'll definitely be happy with.
0: What time of year, uh, what, when were the rough dates on this? And what was your moon cycle and weather conditions?
1: Yeah, so it was the... Uh, middle of September. So the season opens for rifle on September 15th. And, um, so I, I went in there right away, September 15th. Cause like I said, I, I wanted to go archery, but I had some other conflicting things ahead of time. So I couldn't get, get there. So it was September 15th. So I had a, a six day hunt around that time. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it was for what I thought it was, it was way too warm during that time period. It was, it did rain on me and did snow sometimes, but the temperatures were, I think, a little higher than what i would have liked I, I definitely did not see you know the deer movement that i i, that I saw in october like when I, when I came back in october their deer were everywhere but um it was you know the the moon was it was full moon out so that was kind of hindering things as well it was that transition point from when uh you know i, I still saw a lot of deer in velvet i actually saw a really good deer like a 175 inch buck i can get to that a little bit but yeah i passed him on the first day and kind of regretted it later on but he was still in velvet. And so the transition from velvet to hard horn. And so I think a lot of deer were definitely starting to not, not quite move down lower, but, you know, move down those little thick timber patches. And I was kind of having a, a hard time finding And then plus it was opening weekend pressure. And
0: so that's September 15th and you go and hunt for, for six days. Is that right? And then, and then you came back.
1: Yep. Yep. I came, I came back again for a second trip. Yeah. So the first trip, it was basically, first up, I had llamas, which was, like, the, the coolest thing ever. I've never packed in with llamas, but I've done horses in British Columbia. You know, I've done um, pack goats here in Nevada, and this time was the first time with uh, llamas, and I am 100% sold on llamas. If I can, if I can find uh, my friend, I rented them from Wilderness Ridge Trail Llamas out of uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and they are just, you can't quite call them work horses, but they are, they are some things that can handle... Uh, I, I, felt, I felt like they were like clones of me because they could go down some of the steepest uh, terrain. I kind of took them down. I was kind of worried a couple of times of the stuff I was taking them down through, but they just, they handled like a champ and, you know, handled a lot of my gear weight and it made, you know, made for um, a really, really enjoyable hunt.
0: It sounds like that would have been a great photo to see the picture of, of you with your, you're like six foot five and have the longest legs of any human I know. And uh llamas would have extremely long legs as well it probably make for hopefully you got some photos of that
1: oh yeah i definitely got some really fun candid shots and i mean they're a lot of, I've heard a lot of aren't guys, they like, mean guys,
0: i've heard i've heard they're yeah. mean though
1: yeah a lot of guys have said oh i've never hung with llamas they stink they spit i mean these llamas i don't know what they do up there but these things are like they're like dogs again like i always thought uh pack goats are like dogs these things wanted to be hang around me. They're very like, they're vocal between themselves. So they kind of definitely have a pecking order, like a dominance type thing. They'll spit at each other. And I kind of alternated which, which llama would lead what llama. And I found out, okay, this llama is a dominant llama. He definitely wants to lead and go in front and they were totally fine. Like hanging around camp They never gotten anything. I just tied them up at night and they definitely are stubborn though. Like, uh, saying, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink. You can lead a llama to water and they will not drink like, I I went three days without drinking water and I was like, okay, I need to take these guys to water like right now. And, you know, I took them down to a pond, took 20 minutes at night to, you know, hiking in grizzly country. And I got them this little pond, I I marked in my GPS and I sat there for like 30 minutes and the llamas never drank a sip of water. It's like, they're, they're amazing. They're high. they're, They're built for the high country. I'm, it's like, if I can get those guys in Nevada, I'll probably use them again next year. I mean, Colorado, they'd be ideal. Like, I mean, I had, two, so, I had two llamas, and basically all I did when I hiked in, I had my, my backpack, I had my, my rifle, I had optics, and my water. And the llamas carried everything else for that first trip in Wyoming in September.
0: So you went up there by yourself, and you had two llamas, and the llamas carried virtually everything. How, how much did your pack weigh? I mean, how light did you make your stuff if they were carrying most of your gear?
1: that's kind of, that's kind of another uh, funny fact, like yeah, I was talking to my dad all while, while he was driving up there, and he's like, "Oh, you should bring orange juice, you should bring a bunch of bagels, a full jar of peanut butter. I got to the grocery store, got a few extra things, I got to the trailhead, and I realized, wow, I still have twenty five pounds of extra gear I could have brought like oh I still didn't i still I, I still went super lightweight with everything, I still had mountain house meals, I still had all my my normal like pro bar type thing for for meals and like my my little protein uh, oatmeal breakfast thing. I, so I didn't go really crazy, but the only thing I, I guess I added, I, you know, I added some, I did add a grizzly bear uh, electric fence. Cause I was kind of concerned about the gri- I found it near grizzlies in Montana, but I, you know, I just read all those stories lately. And that was right when I was going to Wyoming is when some of those grizzly bear attacks were happening in like Montana and I was, you know, a little leery. So I added that to it. So that's an extra three and a half pounds that the llamas carried and, so I guess I didn't use the llamas fully for what they were capable of, but I figured if I definitely don't stack them up heavy on the way in, they'll be able to carry a lot of my deboned meat on the way out, and i want to help, you know, carry it. So.
0: Yeah, yeah it was, how, many, it how many pounds were each of the llamas, or how many pounds can they carry, and how many pounds were they carrying?
1: Yeah, they can carry uh, 70 pounds total, so 35 on a side. And I believe I was carrying them right at, like, 15 pounds each maybe. Gotcha. So you had a lot, a lot of
0: space for coming out if you were coming out heavy.
1: Yep. And a lot of that weight I had the llamas carry, because I was going to this spot totally, totally blind, and everything I've heard about the high country in Wyoming is there's no water. You know, there's no little streams coming down. There's no real springs. And so I had them um, packing a bunch of those uh, MS, MSR drone dairy bags. There's those, like, flexible, flexible bags yeah. of, of water. So I, they were kind of like four liters of water. And the other one's kind of like six liters of water. So I packed a lot of the weight with the water and then I ended up getting up there and I marked a little seep of a, of a mountain I thought looked like it had a big green patch. I was like, Oh, it's gotta be a little bit of water there. Sure enough, it had water. So the llamas ended up carrying up more weight than they needed to, but you know, in the end, I guess it was worth, it, it had a lot of filtered water and I had to go get water for quite a few days, but the llamas, yeah, they never drank. So, so they never drank the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what they were drinking. I, I kept like taking a little bucket, a little bucket of their feed, sitting in front of them at night or in the morning before I left, I get back. The water was about the same level. And the only really day I saw them drink a ton of water was the day I packed out. We had to cross a couple of streams down lower and they were pounding water down there. But I was like, they're getting from the vegetation a little bit or they're just stubborn and they're drinking little sips here and there. But I mean, they're, they're amazing up there. The weight they can carry, the terrain they can carry They're They're a little slower than I'd kind of like. I mean, I definitely hiked pretty fast and they were, you know, I'm kinda of like tugging on the rope, like, come on guys, let's let's go a little faster here. But I mean that for for them carrying my gear, I, I you know, I couldn't be mad at the llamas at all because I was I was I was fresher than I've ever been hiking up in the mountains. Like it was still a good I think it was seven miles in I was at, so it was it was still a good pound. So this, this
0: guy that has the llamas, is it a deal where he you tell him where you want him to meet you and he brings him to the trailhead or whatever, and, or the spot, and brings him and drops him off? Or do you actually go pick him up? Or how does that work?
1: Yeah, you actually, you can do both of that. He'll meet you there. He even said he had one guy call him. He's like, oh, I'm flying in. Like, can you come pick me up at the airport? And he actually went out and picked him up from the airport. So he's really accommodating, but I just, drove right, I just drove right to his place and... Uh, Met his wife, and his wife got me all situated with the llamas, and did a little short. Uh, you get to like do like a two-hour llama training course, to, like, you know, how to how to tie on the pack saddles, you know, what to do for rope situations, so they don't like have time down during the day, how much feed they supplemental feed they need, what plants to have them avoid, so they don't like get sick up there, because I guess there's a few like poisonous type plants you kind of have to watch out for the llamas get sick on, and. And so yeah, I just met them at their place at the training course, and I ended up uh, renting a trailer from them too. That's, a, that's an added fee to rent a trailer. And yeah, then I just took took him from there and drove out to the trailhead myself and packed packed them all up and started heading in. It was it's pretty funny. Like you get a lot of weird looks on the trailhead when you pass like normal normal hikers, and they're all yeah they've never seen llamas before. So it's it's pretty funny. Everyone wants to take a picture with your llamas. It's 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 a good time.
0: That's pretty cool. Let's take a quick break here. Phonescope is a company that makes custom-molded, precisely-engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. It is simple to text photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. Phonescope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get yours now by using the J. Scott 16 promo code, and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Every month, GoHunt.com Insider gives away great gear and hunts to their Insider members. The GoHunt Insider giveaway for the month of November are four pairs of Vortex Razor HD binoculars. Winners can choose between the 10 by 42s or the 12 by 50s. If you're not already a member of GoHunt.com Insider, go to GoHunt.com forward slash JScott to sign up and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card just for signing up. Okay, I've always wanted to do a trip with llamas. To me, they just look so, it just looks like such a cool thing to have llamas and be able to have them you know, at that point, you know, you're so used to doing such ultralight backpacking and just, you know, weighing every little thing. But man, especially if you were to get something and be way back in there where you always are, having llamas would be, I, I've always thought that would be cool. So do you do you tether them out at night or do you hobble them or what do you do?
1: Yeah, you just you just basically uh, pound a stake in the ground and tether them on like a 15 a foot lead rope and then they just spin around the circle and eat, eat all the same food there. And you just have to, uh, I supplement them each day. I think, I think it was like a pound of, uh, I don't know what you call it. Some sort of like grain pellet thing that you supplement with feed and you just got time apart from each other because I guess they will try to fight during the day. If you, if you tie them close together, they're kind of social animals, but at the same time, like I said earlier, they definitely like to, uh, you know, establish dominance and stuff like that. So you just don't want their, their necks to get caught together in the rope or you don't want the rope to get tied on a tree. So it's kind of like find a good opening for it. So that was kind of difficult to find a, a nice open spot where I could tie them up. And, but for the most part, yeah, they're super easy going, like zero maintenance at all. They don't, like, they were even saying like uh, for like grizzly bears like, well, what, what's going to happen if a grizzly bear comes into camp at night? You know, I'm in my little electric fence area and they're all tied out and they're like, well, the llamas a lot of times will, will scare away the grizzlies. I guess they'll make some big, you know nasty kind of like alarm call, and it'll kind of you know push the grizzly away, but I never had any any predator problems the whole time I was up there on either trip with the llamas the first time, and myself the second time and you know i mean yeah, if you're if you're going to go on a backpack hunt, like I would seriously consider those llamas i mean they're they're the, they're the ticket I mean you can even throw them in the back of your truck if you don't want to uh take a trailer, they can just you know put some two by fours up and make a makeshift. Um, you know, kind of a little corral thing form in the back of your pickup. And, yeah, they're, they're slick.
0: That's pretty awesome. So you, you didn't have any success. You passed that one velvet buck up that first trip. Um, and then you come back in October because I assume the season just is a long season. Or is it one of those that if you don't kill, you can come back on a, on a, on a later season? How does that work?
1: Yeah, if you, if you don't kill, so basically the season dates are uh, September 15th to October 7th. And that's the uh that's the rifle season so yeah i didn't i didn't kill on the 15th for six days i passed 81 bucks up you know between 140 you know a lot of dinks underneath that and all the way up to like 175 and so it was kind of disheartening but i knew i passed up a lot of deer and i felt really good about it like you know i don't want to shoot small deer and i want to shoot something i'm really happy about and was a backcountry hunt and i just i don't know i, I love the mountain so me like having the feeling oh i didn't get something then i can go back again and you know, experience that same thing again. So I went back, planned the dates for way later in the season. I was going to hunt the last. I was planning on hunting the last three days of the season. It was just kind of a random little trip thing. I ended up only hunting two days of the of the of the end of the season. I got there on I think I left on like a Wednesday. Drove all night. It's like a ten and a half hour, eleven hour drive. Drove straight through. Started hiking in the morning. Um, it was a Thursday morning, and it was a complete whiteout. Like. It also had been snowing and raining the day before. So it's like a two-day storm going on. I was just on the tail end of it. So I get up to my spot. It's a, it's a you know, long hike and I don't have llamas this time. I'm just sitting there grinding it out all day long, hiking through the snow. All of a sudden it starts start raining. It starts you know, clearing up a little bit. Then the fog comes, I can't see anything. And so basically, yeah, the whole, whole one day of my hunt, I only had two days of hunting, was, sent, was spent like sitting around killing my thumbs, looking at fog, looking at snow, and just getting like demolished by. I think I, by the end of the day, we had a foot, by the, end of the night, we had a foot and a half of snow on the ground.
0: That's incredible. So, and the, it was like the, what, that'd be like the fifth or sixth of October?
1: Yeah, that was the sixth uh, of October. Yeah, the season ended on the seventh.
0: Wow, that and, seems, that seems early to have snow of that magnitude.
1: Yeah, and I'm sitting there in my, you know, I'm sitting there wondering, okay, am I, Am I gonna be able to hunt it all? Day? I just drive 11 hours to sit in a snowstorm and not be able to glass well all. Like literally, I cannot glass because every time it would clear up, it would just be fog and all the bases had fog. I tried dropping lower in elevation, still fog. Like I was, I was getting pretty frustrated because when it was clear a little bit, I could kind of see some, I could kind of see some tracks in the snow. I was like, okay, there's still deer up high. I was, I was at like 9,600, so I was way up there. And I was like, okay, maybe, am I too high? Uh, the deer all the way down lower because everyone I saw when I was driving in there was all a bunch of elk hunters, all these elk trailers down low in the mountain and looked like, okay, well, maybe no one's, maybe they're mule deer hunting too. And they just know something I don't know. But I was like, there's got to be still mule deer up here because everything I've you know, researched and looked at and experienced over the years, there's still deer up in the high country that time. Yeah, they're not going to come down yet. Mule deer can you know, handle feet of snow before they're starting to migrate out. And it's not the rut yet. It's not like they're moving down to find some does. And so I said, well, if I just stay up here and grind it out, you know, maybe Friday it'll clear up and I'll be able to hunt them. But it was just, yeah, a big mental struggle. That's one of those times you question your sanity when you're sitting there and then you're sitting there tent all night, just trying to pound snow on you and yeah, it's just tough.
0: Why didn't you take the llamas on the second go around?
1: I, I actually just didn't want to uh, make the hassle of driving further to go pick up the llamas and bother them again. And I was just like, I, you know, I just figured I'd just going up for a quick, quick, basically it was going to be a three day trip if I got up there in time, but it ended up being just a two day trip. So it's like, it's just two days. I can pack a lot of gear in my backpack and kind of suck it up and go up and I kill something. I'll, you know, have to just deal with it then. But yeah, once I got up there and I knew it was that much snow and conditions I was dealing with, I was like, yeah, maybe the llamas would have been a good idea. again. I should have probably,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, called, called them up and rented those things again. Cause it was, yeah, it was nasty. I definitely could have used some more, some more, uh, ways to uh stay warm at night or maybe have like a little stove with me because yeah the, the morning i actually ended up killing my buck it was 16 degrees out up there we were it was totally something i didn't expect you know really cold and you know just digging your feet way in the snow and you're sitting there trying to glass and you're just all part of your body starting to shiver and you have all the clothes on that you have and it's like yeah another sanity check right there but it was it, it's fun like that i love those type of grinds where it's unexpected and battling the elements and the mountains it's just like that's what i think a cool it's a backcountry run. that's what i that's what i like to do in the way it's like i like to make myself suffer but it's still like i feel like it's a really cool story when you're done and get out and it, if it works out it's great and it's i don't know it's just like my style it's yeah i don't know it's crazy to, crazy to explain
0: for those of you uh, the listeners that haven't uh heard the other podcasts with brady uh brady real fast uh give me or give the listeners a, just a small synopsis or breakdown of, uh, your background as a fisheries biologist and how much time you spent, uh, with, a in, in the backcountry with a backpack.
1: Yeah. So I was a fisheries biologist for a nice geological survey for, I think it was about five years in, in Northwest Montana. We, uh, I basically did, or our team like all of Glacier National Park's fisheries research. So basically every single day, we would backpack out somewhere remote into the wilderness and stay there for six, 10 days. Or sometimes we might go two, three day trips at a time. We're just backpacking all the time. We'll go in one drainage, sample a bunch of fish, bump over the next ridge, like go down to the next little basin, sample fish there and keep going and keep bumping like that. So we get a lot of, basically I was backpacking from about April, all the way through a little part of November every year. And a lot of those, you know, sometimes it was different stuff where we were front country camping, but most of it was back country camping. So that gave me a lot of time to like, I basically bought gear for my work that I would use also for hunting. So I got to like test a lot of things. Like I found out what I like in backpacks, what I like in stoves, what I like in tents and sleeping bags and just like modify my stuff all the time. So we were hiking, you know, anywhere 50, 60 miles a week, sometimes just like Crazy long hikes, get back in the dark and like grizzly country. So I've been around grizzlies for a long time. So grizzlies really don't scare me, but it's just like always in the back of your mind. And, and I just love all that backcountry stuff. That's what kind of got me addicted on backcountry and backcountry hunting was just like being able to work in uh, Glacier National Park and see all that cool scenery and do those rugged trips way back in the day.
0: That's awesome. So you're snowed in not snowed in but you're fogged in and it's snowing and storming and you ha- do you end up with one day to hunt
1: yeah so basically tell me, tell me, with, so tell
0: me how it breaks down right at right at the end
1: yeah so uh yeah i'm sitting there at night in my in my tent and i upgraded tents this time i went with the kuyu uh mountain star two-person tent instead of my little like lightweight august tent so i had like i'm sitting there in my tent all closed up i have all my clothes on at night I i bought a little uh I think it's like a Primus lantern that basically plugs in my backcountry stove or my fuel canister. And I hang it from the the top of my tent in my little, to my tent at night with the lantern on. I like didn't even eat my mountain house on Thursday. night. I was just like mentally exhausted from like hiking in the snow all day and sitting there trying to like find a place I can glass to hopefully pick up a deer. I didn't eat anything at night. I was like, I'm not gonna waste my fuel. I'm going to burn all my fuel on staying warm. So I just like kept my lantern on most of the night, opened my door every now and then, Shake the shake the snow off the tent, and it was it was, it was wild. It's like one of those things I wish that like oh man I wish I had a cameraman with me or a, a friend with to like capture more of these photos and like just just experience though. It's like one of those things like could, I could tell it, but like how it actually was, it was like uh, just like a kind yeah, of dra- I sh- a drain.
0: I see your photos and I think oh man beautiful photos those are awesome but the the, the photos that I don't see are at night when you're shaking snow off your tent and you're freezing your butt off. And, um, and we're going to talk about gear, uh, here at the end. So you can go through all of that. One question. I, I have that, uh, Kuyu mountain star two person tent, but I have not, uh, had the fortune of using it yet in those kind of conditions. How did it perform?
1: Oh my gosh. It was phenomenal. Like it's, uh, I, it's kind of slightly difficult to put up if you haven't put up for the first time luckily i I kind of use it multiple times but once you get the thing set up it is rock solid super tight it kind of needs a little bigger footprint which is slightly downfall because i like to you know i camp near the tops of of mountains whenever i get a chance i kind of camp a little bit below so i don't like in the summer so i don't deal with lightning storms or whatever so like in wyoming it was hard to try to find a, a nice flat spot that wasn't like you know had all these trees next to it, so I finally found a good blast spot. Unfortunately, it was right underneath a big giant tree with a bunch of snow on it. So while I'm setting up my tent, I brush against the tree. Snow keeps falling down on me, but I mean it was great. I was still able to like when I use that lantern at night, it doesn't quite doesn't make the tent really warm. Like you can take your t- take your clothes off into a t-shirt, but at least it helps because the um, at least it helps a little bit with your heat. And it helps so I can keep keep my like boots dry. I can kind of warm up my hands a little bit. It's like that tent was bomber, like it handled all the snow and nothing. None of the poles caved in. I mean I think I woke up and there might have been like four inches of, of snow on it. But like through the night I was like banging it off every now and then and it's yeah, it was it was an awesome tent. I was fully dry and
0: I like that design um on the rain fly where that the last pole is more of a horizontal pole going across. I think that really makes it solid, don't you?
1: Oh, yeah. And I I totally agree. And I wish uh, I wish I had one of the uh, the Stormstar tents because those ones even look more like that would have been probably more ideal if you had if you had two tents and you had the option which one to buy for a late season hunt, I probably would go with the Stormstar just because that looks, you know, it's a little more bomb proof. It's kind of the vestibules go down a little bit more to the ground. So it helps it prevents that wind drift and you get wind blowing underneath your vestibule blow up snow underneath there It kind of prevent that. But yeah, either one of those tents, I mean, I was I was really happy with it. And it's still lightweight, too. I can't remember what it weighs right now top of my head, but it's...
0: I think I it's right up three, three pounds.
1: Yeah, and three pounds for a two-person tent like that. I mean, you can't... You definitely can't complain.
0: Yeah, so you wake up that morning, and it, is it clear, or did it blow so you knew that the storm had blown out, or what?
1: I, I, I woke up to the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in backcountry hunting, just like Clear skies, everything snowed over. I mean, I, I call them snow ghosts. They're when the tree gets so full of snow, they get so like the pines get so heavy, they start like, creeping over. So they start bending over, kind of like a kind of like a you know Halloween ghost type thing, where they're just like you know leaning way over and it's just, like super cool. There's a big uh, uh, cloud inversion way down below, so the fog layer is like way down in the basin. Everything else above the the, the cloud inversion. Is all clear skies, blue in the morning, just, like, picture perfect. All the mountains are snow-capped. I mean, it's something that, like, you, you read about in, like, you know, old hunting books and stuff like that. Just, like, the best morning I could at describe point, the mule deer hunting.
0: At that point, you've got to know that the deer are just going to be popping, that, that they're going to oh, be, yeah. you know, sticking out like sore thumbs out there.
1: And it had been snowing for two days, you know. Wednesday wasn't that big of a storm. Thursday was more of the big storm. So it's like, yeah, the deer haven't been out moving around. I have all these awesome spots to check out really quick. I get to, you know, I, ba- I camped a little bit closer to my glassing spot. So I basically just popped out of my tent, only had to go like 20, 30 yards, and I was already glassing. It was like a really good camp spot.
0: I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsmans.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. Real Game Calls featuring the Elk Reel. Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy-to-master calls using their proprietary, revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out elkreal.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.elkreel.com.
1: And... Right away, I'm sitting in the glass room. I'm like, oh, there's a doe. There's a three-point. There's a four-point. Four like, where's the big giant buck? And I kept looking and looking. I was like, man, there's deer everywhere. There's not a, not a big deer at all in this basin. It was like, I counted 14 bucks in this one basin. And there was like three or four does. And I was looking way off towards like these aspen trees way down below. I was like, man, that looks good, but so far away. And it's down lower. So I'm like up in this high country basin. There's like a bunch of everything, snow covered. It's so hard to tell what's rock, what's uh, – what's the actual deer vegetation, so I'm like, I'm trying to like eliminate areas. Okay, don't glass here right now, glass over here, glass these. I was trying to focus more on like the little timber pockets, like cause last time I was up there, the deer were kind of in the open basin, but they were definitely hugging those timber. So I, that's why I set up myself this time to, okay, cover some good open stuff in the morning, but also be right near those timber pockets. So when the deer come into the timber pockets, you'll be able to see them. And I figured, okay, yeah, I'll be glassing up here you know, maybe all morning, maybe three, four hours. And so I had like all my clothes on possible. I was just like a big Michelin man. Like I had everything on down jackets, down pants. Like we'll go over that later. But I was, I definitely wasn't set up to hike around a lot. And boom, I was sitting there, you know, class up 14 bucks. I was like, okay, where's the big deer? There's nothing in here. And all of a sudden i looked down at my 15s and boom, there's just, you know, this, this toe just standing there the whole time. I just must've been behind a tree or near something else. And he was just down in the bottom of the space. And I'm like, Holy crap, this deer, is, this deer is awesome. It looks gorgeous, my 15s. I put my spotter on him, get my, uh, my digiscoping scoping set up really quick, throw it on there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he has a big inline. This deer had like eight inch inline. And you know, just an awesome frame, big backs, big fronts, chocolate horns, just like, like my dream Wyoming buck, basically.
0: Yeah, and you're and you had me at inline.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the I know center. you. Yeah.
0: You you had me at inline. <laughs> yeah. So man, I was just like, how far how away is he, and 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 what's he doing?
1: At this distance, it was I think it was a thousand two hundred yards away. So I was like, I was like, man, this is like it's really open down where I had to cross through, and I'm like, how do I get down to him? I started figuring out, okay, what's he gonna do? And not, I, was, I got like six minutes of digiscoping footage of him and he bedded down. And I'm like, okay, game on. He bedded down really early. He bedded down within 35 minutes of, of sunrise. It was, it was really crazy. I don't know what, maybe he was up feeding earlier when the storm, maybe the storm broke last so like, I don't know when the storm broke at night, but maybe he started feeding right away. So he bedded and I was like, okay, he's not gonna bed for long. I need to start figuring out how I'm gonna get down on him. So I started ranging, I was like, okay, he's 1,200, this tree down here is 700 what that distance is going to be? I started trying to range some other trees further. And i like, there's a big, like, halfway between me and him, there's another, like, I, really I want to deep
0: stop you seat. there. I want to stop you there for just a second. Explain for some of the listeners out there that maybe aren't as experienced if the deer's out there at 1,200 yards, why and why are you ranging other trees? Just break that down yeah. i know why but I, I want i want to get some uh explanation there of what you're actually trying to accomplish
1: yeah so i'm trying to do a couple things here. It's trying to uh basically since is the open basin i want to try to range the trees not only to find okay if i can get to this tree how far is it going to be to the deer then because it's so hard to judge the distance i'm trying to be like, okay i want to get close to this deer because i have a rifle i want to you know get under 400 yards would be ideal and so I want to be able to get to a spot and be able to take a shot right there. Really. Cause I know he's not going to be better there very long. I know he's going to try to move. So I don't want to be like, okay, now I'm here, but crap, that was 800 yards now I'm 800 yards away from him. And I nailed, I went down this huge, long, you know, avalanche chute. And now I'm stuck here at 800 yards and now i have to backtrack back out and loop back around and try to get back down on him. And there's deer around the other places too. So I'm kind of like, okay, range here, that's going to be that distance. I can, maybe that looks like it might be a 450, maybe a 500 yard shot, range of other trio that's 650. It's trying to narrow down where I could possibly shoot from and also where I could like navigate that basin, avoid the other deer, avoid the deer I'm actually going after. And then maybe even try to set myself up in this box. It was his first bed and within 35 minutes, I figured, okay, he's going to get up. He's going to move somewhere else. He's going to go towards the timber. His bed is right in the open. And I was like, okay, this is just keep ranging keep trying to figure it out. And eventually I'll find a good, a good little scenario where I can narr- get, finagle my way down the mountain into this ab shoot set up. And hopefully that's the yardage I want to go to. That's why I think ranging is essential. I could have went down there blind and, you know, I would have wasted so much time like, Oh, too far away. Deer's now moved. Now deer's in the timber. Now everything's over. You know, it's like one of those things you just got to like, you have to rush in that moment. Cause like things are kind of going fast and you'd be like, okay, what's going to happen. Is another deer going to bump him? Is he going to get up in bed? But shelter's got to like, you give us all the time in the world. I'd rather analyze the situation really fast, get my, not like, not let my adrenaline take over at this point and be like, okay, I need to run down there. I need to get on the deer right now. Let's get this done. And I was like, no, just settle down. Take it easy. Analyze the situation. I took a bunch of photos on my cell phone of, okay, here he is bedded. Here's the basin. Here's the ab chute. So when I got down in there, I would still recognize what I was looking at because everything's going to change. Even though it's a rifle, it's I use the same thing for archery, but this is a That's little a bit of a great tip so right
0: there that's a great yeah. tip when you're out to take a couple photos because once you change your angle things look different and if you're if you, I assume you took photos and kind of had landmarks in those photos so once you got down to a different angle you're like okay there's that tree or group of trees or there's that big rock okay I'm, yep. I'm in the right spot that's a huge tip
1: right there Brady exactly yeah, you always try to find like those those big dead snags or that snag that's broken off halfway like Things that you remember, like I've done it before, where you pick out, okay, this little this little small timber patch, but I don't, I don't like using green live trees because they're always the same when you get down. That's okay. Like you said, use rocks, use big, giant landmarks. And so, yeah, I just analyzed the situation, ranged a bunch, and I was like, okay, I think I'm comfortable like this. I went back up to my tent, because uh, it was only 25 yards away, I grabbed my trekking pole because I always like hugging with at least one trekking pole. And then going down in the snow, I really wanted to as well because it's so slick and the ground underneath is not frozen yet because it was insulated by all that snow last, the night before. So, yeah, I start, I start like, going down in on them after I found out the path I wanted to go. I start going down in the basin. I ended up having to crest over into another little, like, finger basin. And I was like, boom, there's two more deer. And I'm like, what, what are these two? I see, the, I see a big boxy frame. I dropped down. I, I quickly just ranged them really quick. So, I'm like, what's this other deer? Like, I really want this inline buck. So I'm not going to pass up an opportunity randomly and get lucky. It's like, well, luck might be on my side here. And it was a nice, it was a nice four by four, like a one, one sixty type buck. He said really crab fronts. And I was like, for a while I couldn't actually see the deer. And so I wasted probably five minutes trying to determine, is this another shooter buck that I just saw or is this another small deer? And finally I saw his fronts and elected to keep going down the mountain. But that was a story that kind of adds to my other story here later on. So I started going down the mountain, get all the way down. where the spot i'm just like going through the snow at one point i'm basically like i'm a a, i really love skiing so it really felt like i was skiing i was going down some super steep stuff on my boots and literally i would slide for i don't know 10 15 feet finally stop and turn the other way kind of keep zigzagging i would slide it was that steep of elevation the snow was so slick that if i didn't have a pack on and have a rifle you could have basically sat down and like you know slid yourself all the way down to where the buck is so it was like that was once you were, once I was down in the basin, it was really fast getting down where I needed to shoot him. I was fairly hidden, which was a great thing. There was another like, you know, ridge, right. And right where the edge of the ridge was was a big avalanche shoot cut down. And it came down to the basin where he was at. So I had plenty to cover. I get over there. I'm looking for the buck. The buck's not there. He's gone. And I'm just like, what did I just do? Why did I waste my time looking at a non-target buck that I did not first see it at all. It was totally a lucky deer. If I'd have shot him, it would have been, you know, luck to seeing him. Wasted that time trying to figure out if he was a shooter. And now my big inline buck, a giant inline that i like, you know, I've been dreaming of forever. Like it is gone. And I was like, what's going on now? I'm looking for him, looking for him. All of a sudden I see he's he like moved 150 yards um, up the mountain a little bit and is now kind of in a little sparse timber area. And I'm like, that's why I like I, I had enough time to test the situation, but it's still like one of those, times and like okay it was his first bed and he is going to move and the reason i didn't want to wait till his second bed is because i didn't want him to go in the big timber So i finally get down in a position finally see him and then yeah this is that's where things that you know I started going on autopilot and had the flying scope on him figured out okay that is him there's the big inline. try to set up my rifle in the snow it's just i have, I have a bipod on my rifle it only goes to like i think it's six six to nine inches Snow you is way too deep for the bipods. so I'm like frantically like every time I put the rifle down somewhere, it's just like boom, berries in the snow, can't shoot, berries up in the barrel. How far are you? How far? Uh, are you? It, yeah, I ranged them at uh, 440 yards, and that was with a super steep downhill angle, and I didn't, so I don't know exactly what the true distance was, but you know, it could be close to like 500 yards.
0: Okay, but you're shoot, you're on, you're on a, you're on a uh, slope. Uh, and and he's on the opposite slope, but you're shooting downhill.
1: Yep, I'm and shooting so, really steep. I'm you know, shooting really steep downhill, like kind of through an avalanche chute, out the avalanche chute to a basin, to uh to my right. The basin's kind of swirling out to my to my right.
0: And you're trying to get the rifle rested, but the bipod is falling through the snow. So what do you yeah, do? Yeah,
1: the, the snow's too deep, and that's so why finally, like, I'm frantically moving around there, and I'm like, he's keep he's, the buck's feeding, following another buck. I'm like, I don't want to keep him, let him go out further and further and get into this timber patch. And every time he takes a step, he's getting further. So I like finally found this boulder.
0: Guys, thanks for listening and supporting my podcast. If you would, please go on iTunes and leave me a comment and Leave me a five-star rating that helps our placement on iTunes. If you'd like to send me an email, you can at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along our adventures at jscottoutdoors.com, also on Instagram or Facebook. I'd like to thank my sponsors for supporting this podcast, GoHunt.com Insider, PhoneScope, The Outdoorsman's, and Real Game Calls.